This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. It is my extreme pleasure to introduce Ocean Vong to all of you. Ocean is a writer and a poet whose work has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker, and who has won many prizes, including the T.S. Eliot Prize for his de- debut collection of poetry, Night Sky with um, Exit Wounds. Tonight, Ocean is going to talk about his new book, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. And um, let me tell you, uh, reading this book is probably the closest I'm ever going to get to approaching divinity. Um, it's true. <laughs> reading it was like meditating. Uh, told as a letter from our na- narrator, Little Dog, to his mother, Ocean's new novel is both a tender and brutal exploration of race, class, and masculinity, and also of the narrator's relationship with his grandmother, his mother, and his first love. It is the rare book that is an achievement in terms of both technique and emotion, a novel that had me captured from the first page to the last. Um, Tonight, Ocean will be in conversation with Lawrence Min Bui Davis, curator of Asian Pacific American Studies at the Smithsonian. Um, everyone, let us all welcome Ocean Vuong and Lawrence Minbu Davis. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Um, I didn't see the podium. <laughs> um, uh, thank you. I know it's summer and the, the weather's lovely. Um, and, and so I, I thank you for, for choosing to be here and, and with your presence and uh, with your attention. Um, you know, this is just amazing sight to see. Um, I'm a poet. I'm trained as a poet first and foremost. And one thing uh, they tell you as a poet is never to expect anybody to wait at the end of what you write and it's good advice uh, you don't want to write uh, you know thinking anybody's waiting for you um, and so that's all to say that this is all extra to me to to to, to be in a room um, and share this moment with you and to have folks standing like this this is all extra this is all uh, gravy, uh, vegan gravy, <laughs> uh, mind you, um, but gravy nonetheless, and it's not lost on me. So I truly appreciate it, and I, I, I truly thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, um, and thank you also to Legendary Politics and Prose and their staff um, for having us and to holding the space, both uh, for me tonight and for this book, but also perennially for all of the, the authors who come through this town and make it what it is. Um, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'll read a little bit from uh, the book and then we'll have a conversation. Um, one of my goals was for writing this book was to turn the first person, the I, uh, which uh, a pronoun that can very easily, very tantalizingly become a black hole, something that just sucks all the attention uh, and light out of the room towards itself. And 
I, I, but I also felt that the eye can be transformed into a searchlight uh, to those around it. And in fact, by turning the gaze outward to one's surrounding, one might say more about oneself uh, by shedding light on uh, how one came to be and the people around uh, this certain character, little dog. And in his case, it would be uh, the two women, his grandmother and mother, who raised him. Two women who uh, survived the Vietnam War and now in America, in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, deal with the aftermath of PTSD and mental illness. And this scene is um, sort of in media's rest where he's sort of pulled into one of the episodes. I'm dragged into a hole, darker than the night around it, by two women. Only when one of them screams do I know who I am. I see their heads, black hair matted from the floor they sleep on, the air sharp with a chemical delirium as they jostle in the blur of the car's interior. Eyes still thick with sleep, I make out the shapes, a headrest, a felt monkey the size of a thumb swinging from the rear view, a piece of metal shining, then gone. The car peels out of the driveway, and I can tell from the smell of acetone and nail polish that it's your tan and rust Toyota. You and Grandma Lan are in the front, clamoring for something that won't show itself. The street lights fling by, hitting your faces with the force of blows. He's going to kill her, Ma. He's going to do it this time, you say, breathless. We riding, we riding helicopter fast, Lan says. She is in her own mind, red and dense with obsession. We riding where? She clutches the flip-down mirror with both hands. I can tell by her voice that she is smiling, or at least gritting her teeth. He's going to kill my sister, Mama, you say. You sound like you're flailing down a river. I know, Carl, it's for real this time. You hear me, Ma? Lan rocks side to side from the mirror, making whooshing sounds. We getting out of here, huh? We got to go far, little dog. Outside. The night surges by like sideways gravity. The green numbers on the dash read 3.04 a.m. Who put my hands in my face? The tires squeal at each turn. The streets are empty and it feels like a universe in here. In everything hurling through the cosmic dark while in the front seat the women who raise me are losing their minds. Through my fingers, the night is black construction paper. Only the frazzled heads of these two before me are clear, swaying. Don't worry, Mai. You're speaking to yourself now. Your face so close to the windshield, the glass fogs a ring that spreads in equal measure to your words. I'm coming. We're coming. After a while, we swerve down a street lined with continentals. The car crawls, then stops in front of a gray, clabbered townhouse. My, you say, pulling the emergency brake. He's going to kill my. Lan, 
who all this time had been shaking her head from side to side, stops, as if the words have finally touched a little button inside her. What? Who kill who? Who die this time? Both of you stay in the car, you say. You unbuckle your belt, leap out, and shuffle toward the house, the door left open behind you. There's a story, Lan would tell, of Lady Jiu, the mythical woman warrior who led an army of men and repelled the Chinese invasion of ancient Vietnam. I think of her seeing you. How, as legend goes, armed with two swords, she'd fling her yard-long breasts over her shoulders and cut down the invaders by the dozens. How it was always a woman who saved us. Who die now? Lan swings around. Her face, made stark by the overhead light, ripples with this new knowledge. Who gonna die, little dog? She flips her hand back and forth, as if opening a locked door to indicate emptiness. Somebody kill you? For what? But I'm not listening. I'm rolling down the window, arms burning with each turn, cool November air. My stomach grabs as I watch you mount the front steps, the nine-inch machete glinting in your hand. You knock on the door, shouting, come out, Carl you say in Vietnamese. Come out, you fucker. I'm taking her home for good. You can have the car. Just give me my sister. At the word sister, your voice cracks into a short, busted sob before regaining control. You bash the door with the machete's wooden butt. The porch light turns on, your pink nightgown suddenly green under the fluorescent. The door opens. You step back, a man appears. He half lunges from the doorway as you backpedal down the steps, the blade locked at your side as if pinned in place. He has a gun, Lon Whisper shouts from the car, now lucid. Rose, it's a shotgun. It shoots two eaters at once. They eat your lungs inside out. Little dog, tell her. Your hands float over your head. The metal clanks on the driveway, the man huge, his shoulders sloped under a gray Yankee sweatshirt, steps up to you, says a few words through his teeth, then kicks the machete to the side. It disappears in the grass with a flash. You mumble something, make yourself small, cup your hands under your chin, the posture you take after receiving a tip at the nail salon. The man lowers his gun as you back away, shaking toward the car. It's not worth it, Rose, Lan says, cupping her mouth with both hands. You can't beat a gun. You just can't. Come back. Come back in the helicopter. Ma, I hear myself say, my voice cracking. Ma, come on. You edge slowly into the driver's seat turned to me with a nauseated stare. There's a long silence. I think you're about to laugh, but then your eyes fill. So I turn away, to the man carefully eyeing us, hand on his hip, the gun clamped between his armpit, pointed at the ground, protecting his family. 
When you start to talk, your voice is scraped out. I catch only parts of it. It's not Mai's house, you explain, fumbling with your keys. Or rather, Mai is no longer there. The boyfriend, Carl, who used to slam her head against the wall, is no longer there. This is somebody else, a white man with a shotgun and a bald head. It was a mistake, you're saying to Lan. An accident. But Mai has not lived here for five years, Lan says, with sudden tenderness. Rose, although I don't see it, I can tell she's brushing your hair behind your ear the way a mother does. Mai moved to Florida, remember? To open her own salon. Lan is poised, her shoulders relaxed. Someone else has stepped inside her and started moving her limbs, her lips. We go home now. You need sleep, Rose. The engine starts. The car lurches into a U-turn. As we pull away from the porch, a boy, no older than I am, points a toy pistol at us. The gun jumps and his mouth makes blasting noises. His father turns to yell at him. He shoots once, two more times. From the window of my helicopter, I look at him. I look him dead in the eyes and do what you do. I refuse to die. Thank you. Thank you. we had maybe two years ago when you were amidst writing this, um, you were, I think, had returned from a residency in Italy, and you mentioned seeing Michelangelo's David and that there was a crack in it, and you mentioned the idea, hey, this is bringing back that conversation, um, the idea that if, if the David fell, it would shatter, and you were thinking about that idea of shattering and wholeness and that it would still be what it is shattered and trying to theorize a novel in that way in progress where you were actively playing with form and thinking about can I make a novel that is shattered and in that shatteredness be itself be most itself in that shattered form particularly in terms of engaging a refugee history that is so much about being shattered and I wanted to start there especially I think the passage that you read for us already kind of giving us some of that and and talk a little bit about that uh, impulse and how you were thinking about form going into this novel. Right, right. Thank you so much for, for reminding me that. Yeah, um, that's a great question of form. As a poet, I'm always thinking of form from start to finish. And I had the great luck of being um, of in Florence and um, seeing the David as one does. And I was surprised to know that this, this um, iconic 
monolithic symbol of um, you know the the the, the Greco Roman canon of philosophy that makes so much of our of our Western literature as we know it um, was inherently flawed. Um, the crack was always there. It was a bad piece of marble, and uh, it took it took decades to get that marble into what it was um, into the the David. Um, but it was it was it was left out in the rain. It was expanded and contracted, and it had this in, inherent doom uh, built into it. And I thought, um, what a, a, a poetic rendition of um, the inherent fallacies of uh, perfection, or the notion of perfection, um, or rather the myth of perfection that we are often obsessed with uh, in art making. And one of the, 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 the critical vocabularies that we have when thinking about literature is whether a book is unbalanced or disjointed. Right? And often when critics say a book is, um, is unbalanced, it means it's, it's not that great. It has flaws. Right? And I always felt that it was strange that uh, certain colonialistic milieus demand that even of uh, writers coming out of geopolitical realities or writers writing about geopolitical realities, um, how can, you know, in other words, to if a writer comes out of fracture, comes out of trauma, comes out of, of war, um, as one does in Vietnam, a country no larger than California, with more bombs fallen on it than all of World War II combined. In that sense, to write a fluid, cohesive novel with those subjects is ultimately to write a lie. And I thought, how, how can I enact these fractures not as failures in literature, but as conscious, deliberate uh, enactions of a faithful rendition of what it's like to be deranged by history. And that scene is, is a, a high watermark in the novel because it's also an allegory of what it is to live with folks who have mental illness. Often you do take the back seat. Often, but you're in the same car. You're going to the same place, but you, you, you do surrender so much to their world. And, and one of the things that were important to me with this novel was to not simply recast the binary of madness and sanity. I wasn't so much interested in that. I was interested in the complication, complicated realities of living and breathing, both the pros and the cons of folks with mental illness. A lot of this was informed by Holocaust scholarship. A lot of the Holocaust researchers, after decades of seeing themselves as victims and seeing their ancestors as merely victims, decided to look at it again and say, wait a minute, perhaps despite all the trauma, despite all the epigenetic trauma, there is also simultaneously epigenetic strength. And we start to, 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 to see that some of the hypervigilance, the, the fear, the paranoia that some of these folks feel might actually serve them if only they were still in wartime. And in this scene, 
little dog sort of surrenders the imagination, his imagination to his elders. And he agrees that, you know what, we're going we're to be on a helicopter. Even though it is a tan and rust Toyota, it is a helicopter. And he makes a decision which imagination to follow. Because the boy who shoots the, the toy gun is also working in a field of imagination, and he refuses to comply with that field. And so the sense of reality is always deranged in this book. And I think what I was interested in was that, what if the Michelangelo fell? That's what they were telling me when I asked them. They said, they're one earthquake, and they would lose the Michelangelo. And because it's, it's if it's the way he's posed, the, the fracture is in his ankle, right? So he, you might want to call him Achilles, um, um, but, but uh, rather than the David. But he's inherently uh, wounded. And, and they said we would lose the Michelangelo forever. And I thought so much of, um, and, and they said we would have to immediately try to refurbish him. We had to put him back together somehow. It would cost millions of dollars. And I thought about art refurbishment and restoration. Often when we find a pot or a vase in the dirt, the immediate impulse is we got to restore it. We got to see the original. If we look at a bomb city, we got to put it together. And I think it's interesting because that, that gaze privileges the original object, but it ignores the violence that rendered that object destroyed. So immediately, our, the way we view art evinces how we view history. That we're okay with erasing the violence in order to have the original. And I thought, what if I wrote a novel that looked like a broken vase on the ground? What if the novel was not cohesive? To insist that in between the shards, there still exists entire lives. And that in fact, if one is broken, one is still in possession of a complete story. That felt more important to me than to write the, the, the monolithic tome of cohesion that we expect so many great American novels to perform. Um, my next question requires you to indulge me for a bit. I want to I want to read a passage and ask you to read with me, actually. So I'm going to start it, and you're going to take over for me. And then my, get, get my eyes. And then my question. You good? Yes. I saw all the things in our city you were too busy at work to know about. Things even Trevor, having lived all his life on this side of the river, the white side, the one I was now riding on, never saw. I saw the lights on Asylum Ave, where there used to be an asylum that was actually a school for the deaf, that caught fire and killed half a ward back in 18-something. And to this day, no one knows what caused it. But I know it as the street where my friend Sid lived with his family after they came back over from India in 95. How his mom, a school teacher back in New Delhi, went door to door, hobbling on her bloated diabetic feet, selling hun hunting knives from Cutco to make $97 a week. Cash. 
There were the Canino brothers, whose father was in jail for what seemed like two lifetimes for going 70 on a 65 in front of a state trooper on 91. That and the 20 bags of heroin and the Glock under his passenger seat. Still, still, there was Marin, who took the bus 45 minutes each way to work at the Sears in Farmington, who always had gold around her neck and ears, whose high heels clacked like the slowest, most deliberate applause when she walked to the corner store for cigarettes and hot Cheetos, her Adam's apple jutting out, a middle finger to the men who called her faggot, called her homomaphrodite, who'd say, holding their daughter's or son's hand, I'm gonna kill you, bitch, I'm gonna cut you, AIDS gonna take you out, don't sleep tonight, don't sleep tonight, don't sleep. We passed the tenement building on New Britain Avenue, where we lived for three years, where I rode my pink bike with training wheels up and down the linoleum halls so the kids on the block wouldn't beat me up for loving a pink thing. I must have ridden down those halls a hundred times a day, the little bike bell clinking as I hit the wall at each end. How Mr. Carlton, the man who lived in the last apartment, kept coming out and yelling at, e yelling at me each day, saying, Who are you? What are you doing here? Why don't you do that outside? Who are you? You're not my daughter. You're not destiny. Who are you? But all that, the whole building is gone now. Replaced by a YMCA. Even the tenement parking lot, where nobody parked since nobody had cars, busted through with weeds nearly four feet high, is gone. All of it bulldozed and turned into a community garden with scarecrows made from mannequins thrown out by the dollar store off Bushnell. Entire families are swimming and playing handball where we used to sleep. People are doing butterfly strokes where Mr. Carlton eventually died, alone in his bed. How no one knew for weeks until the whole floor started to reek and the SWAT team, I don't know why, had to come bust down the door with guns, I don't know why. How, for a whole month, Mr. Carlton's things were left out in a big iron dumpster out back, and a wooden hand-painted pony, its tongue-lowed face, peeked out from the dumpster's top in the rain. Thank you. So, I, I asked for this because it begins a kind of extended homage to Hartford. Um, but also because this particular portion is a kind of um, roll call of the the outcast and the, the, the downtrodden, maybe. And I, I wanted to ask you um, to start to, to talk about that as a kind of direction or trajectory for the book, to, to think about Hartford, but also to think about this kind of, or these kind of dimensions of not just Hartford, but I kind of more broadly that... Um, through Little Dog, we are forced to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. It's a catalog. It's a Whitmanic catalog. And I think, hearkening back on Whitman's roots, again, I, I, my undergraduate work was in 19th century American literature, so Whitman's always in my mind. And I think to think of Whitman's attempt to hold America at the time when the Union was falling apart he projected everything into the line of the King James Bible. How do I hold this country together? He, he saw himself working alongside Lincoln. As grandiose as, he, as that might seem, in the poetic line, he radicalized what 
a poetic line can hold. And it was an endless, almost a train. It was just America pushed into the train. And I thought, what would happen if instead of projecting widely abstract across America, because women would go, you know, the pioneers, the boats, and the, the tradesmen. And I thought, what if I did that just to Hartford? What would happen if an Asian-American writer who grew up in Hartford decided to use an American tool to hold what is dear to him? And I think part of that was a way of preserving or expanding New England working-class identity, which was very important to me. And I didn't know that until I went to New York. And I tell folks, I'm from Connecticut. And they say, ooh, fancy. <laughs> you know? and, and they thought we all had sweaters tied around our, <laughs> tied around our necks and yachts, you know, and went to, to private school. And that, that happens, too. Um, but but it, it, didn't, it wasn't the world I knew. And I thought, wow, what a way that the language and the sentence, the Whitmanics catalog as a means of expanding what has been forgotten, what has been ignored. And, and it was such a powerful moment, I think, to me, to look back at the lineage of American letters, to take a tool uh, from an elder and use it for oneself towards a futurity that looked more like the world that I cherished. And, and I think that was the impulse, was to hold these folks together. And, and, and that section moves very fast, because I think often you go by Hartford on, the, on I-91, and you just go, you blow through it on your way to New York or Boston or what have you. And I wanted those lives to move just as quickly when we moved, when we passed them, just like faces on the train. You mentioned, as an Asian American writer, kind of grappling with this tradition, but also grappling with this kind of swath of humanity. As I was reading it, I was thinking about your friend, uh, Hugh Men Wing, and um, Balfi, both Vietnamese-American poets from the Midwest who are kind of deeply invested in their working-class roots. And I was thinking of uh, Lyndon, a, a Vietnamese-American poet in Philadelphia, who is also a refugee and spends a lot of time thinking about houseless populations, not only in Philadelphia, but across the country. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering about like a kind of refugee sensibility or purview that pays attention or that feels connected to a working class that is not necessarily Vietnamese or Asian-American or even necessarily immigrant. Um, I, I wonder if you could think about that a little bit for us. Yeah, I, the names, I mean, the, the, I have a photo of Teresa Ha Kyung Cha um, in, my, in, my, in my office, and she wrote this fantastic masterpiece of a novel called Dictae. And two days before it was supposed to come out in the early 90s, she was murdered and raped in New York City. She's a Korean-American visual artist and genius. And her thesis was, in a way, I see myself working in the same lineage, where she decided that the only way for her to utter a faithful displacement, psychological and physical and linguistic, was to write a novel that resists comprehension. I mean, it was the anti-novel. And it, she was way ahead of her time, and it, was, it would be the precursor to the Maggie Nelsons, the Claudia Rankins, the Banu Kapils. 
uh, and and she did that. And I think it was such a powerful. If you have a chance, read that book. She there's photos. She interrupts herself, right? She starts to to write in Korean, and then interrupts herself with French and English and photos, um, and it, what she was creating, I feel, because she's a visual artist, was more an exhibit of disorientation rather than a linear plot. And a lot of scholars have trouble teaching it and carrying it. And canonization happens in the classroom. Right? That's how we carry, that's how we make the decisions of how, how, what we preserve in American letters. And her book has dropped out of the syllabi because it's so difficult to teach and stand behind. But it's having a revival. And, and she's always somebody who I think gives me permission to be, to, to fall apart and still be okay. Which is why the, po the book, the novel, actually does crumble um, about two-thirds through. It's, it starts to collapse. The sentences fall apart. Um, this is also done by um, Faulkner in The Sound and the Fury. And that's a, another interesting novel about American failure. It was about the, uh, the failure of Reconstruction and the, the, the fading of the Southern aristocracy. And I took the same gaze and I thought, what, what happens if we look at the failure of the American working class? Right, to change the gaze using the same mechanisms. And so this novel falls apart halfway through. Thank you. Um, I want to circle around to a language that the, the narrator uses about himself as a writer, or rather the language that he's rendered in, which is uh, there's a kind of repetition of being viewed as necessary and urgent as a kind of not just an announcement that the, that this is a powerful, important writer, but actually that this is a certain kind of writer in proximity to, to whiteness, maybe, or as a, as a kind of ethnic writer. Um, and I want to ask you to think about that as a new novelist, as a Vietnamese-American poet and novelist, um, your sense of the consumption of work by... Um, you as a writer of color and of other writers of color in this moment and how you're seeing that kind of rendering or that relationship between the work that you're doing and how it's being consumed. Great, great question. I think for me, that, that question was how I arrived at deciding to write a novel and not say a memoir or a book of essays. Um, mostly because as a poet, I began with truth and ended with myth. That was just my natural trajectory. That was where my obsessions lie. That's where I felt most free, where I had most agency. And I think for nonfiction, the goal is to arrive at truth through hard-earned research, um, a skill set that I didn't really have. But I was also aware in the tradition of writers of color in America we are often seen as conduits of an anthropological reality rather than craftspeople when wielding the sentence. And Maxine Hong Kingston, an elder in our Asian American community, experienced this when she wrote Woman Warrior. Woman Warrior was supposed to be her contribution to the great American novel as a Chinese American woman. 
And her, her publishers said, convinced her, it will sell more if it's a memoir. And so it's called Memoirs of a Childhood Among Ghosts. And that was the eight, the 70s. And, and if I were to repeat that, I would forsake the sacrifices and the efforts she had gone through to make this world and this contemporary, contemporary career possible for me and many elders like her. And I think that's some, something that always happens to writers of color where we are seen as tour guides to pre-made worlds rather than world makers ourselves. And it happens in a very subtle way, right? And so I think I could have written about Mars and had these characters live in the sci-fi world and it'll still be true. I could have done that. I could have made it medieval or, or, or a Renaissance or, uh, you know, ancient China. But I wanted to invite an autobiographical reading. I wanted to participate in the negotiation of this context, that I knew that if I wrote this novel, the majority of readers will try to see me inside it. And I wanted to invite that and ultimately reject it. It was one way of saying, this is my only agency as an artist, that you can't get the, the exotic, smoldering world you have to get the whole world. And that's why the book falls apart. Because if you think it's a tour guide of a world, that world starts to vanish before you. Um, and that felt very important to me, to negotiate with that expectation of a person of color writing in American letters and refusing the act of accommodating a, a larger curiosity about an exotic truth. Um, and that's, that felt really important. And I don't know if it's successful, but that was the impulse behind it. In view of time, we want to open it up to questions from the audience now and ask that we do have a mic over here. So if you do have a, a question, oh, and also here, if you could kindly um, come up to the mic so that everyone can hear your question and also so that it can be uh, recorded. Hey. Hi. Okay, I'm not sure if you're on. Um, I had a question about the your the approach you took to the novel. You said that you wanted to take something like shattered and present it as something whole. And in talking about this book tonight, you said that your book kind of falls apart in the middle. And so I was wondering if you like shattered it yourself in the process of writing, or if it began shattered and like shatters further. Like I'm interested in how like where the shattering fits in and how you're describing the book. In your yeah. That's great, great question. Um, you'll see it in, in, in the book, the physical shattering. It, it was an orchestration, of course, as novels are. So the chaos and the collapse is orchestrated um, with artifice, uh, you know, and and, and planning. Um, but what I wanted to really show, I think, when when the lines fall apart two-thirds of the way to, they fall apart into poetry. And I think that was sort of my Trojan horse, to get folks to read poems. <laughs> but, but on a theoretical level, if we're thinking about literary theory, what I wanted, what I hope to portray was that when the stability of prose falters 
it's, it falters and breaks apart into poetry. That poetry is a praxis of fracture. The line break itself and the cesura within the line break is a moment of destruction orchestrated. And I think in that way, it starts to mingle to me with queer theory, where one often sees breakage as failure, but for so many queer folks, failure is a way forward. So many times we had to fail in a society that did not consider our bodies worthwhile. And we move forward despite that. We fail forward. And poetry is one way of moving forward to the, from right to left through the break. And I think for me, it was one way of saying it's okay when sense and sensibility crumbles because you still have the pieces of language orchestrated as poems. Poems are the debris, and the debris, as we know, says so much for our, for our, for our species. Um, and, and I think it was, it, it can feel chaotic when you encounter it, it can feel overwhelming, but I think you realize that, oh, wait a minute, our species has been using this tool for millennia, and the novel has only returned to that familiar foothold in the syntax. Thank you. Hi. Hi. Uh, hi. Um, so I want to ask you a question about Night Sky of Exit Wounds. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of my favorite books of poetry of all time. And there's thank, one poem in the book that literally haunts me in the best way possible. Um, and there's one poem in the book, Into the Breach, where you use a quote from Jeffrey Dahmer. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to know what influenced your decision to use that quote from Jeffrey Dahmer, especially in the context where this is a white man in the white supremacist society we live in who literally devoured the bodies of queer men of color. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was the hardest poem I've ever written. And... It was a decree, you know, it was a, it was a decree for me following a, a, a quote that's often attributed to Robert Hayden, um, but it's also attributed to Horace, so it's hard to know where it comes from. But the, 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 the quote is, nothing human is foreign to me. And it's something that I aspire to interrogate. And for me, the poem was is the best method of that interrogation, of the hypothetical. What would happen if I were to think that way? What would happen, or how far, or how near am I to that thinking, the quote that Dahmer said, which is a romanticization of death, a romanticization of devouring and cannibalism and murder. And when I looked at that, I thought, wait a minute. He's not so far from the culture we're in. When we talk about love, we talk about devouring. We use the metaphor, I could eat them up. Right? Sugar, honey, I could swallow you. Right? The, the, the lexicon of consumption, possession, and violence is already entangled in intimacy in this white supremacist patriarchal structure. 
that to love something is to own it, which is also what Dahmer tried to do. And I think for me, it was important for me to not, because the, the media was, was, you know, he's a monster. That was, it was a binary. <laughs> Poetry for me is a place where I get to say, how far am I from this human? How close am I? Can I think that way on a bad day? Can I love somebody so much I want to eat them? And I think, for me, I really went there. And so the poem is tricky because it ends at a hypothetical. It ends on the word if. So it plays out the scene, and then it stops. It says, you know what? I found out. <laughs> I can't, can't do it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I had to go there. Um, because charged, to me, it was Robert Hayden, who, one of my heroes, a black poet who was scandalized for not participating fully enough in the black arts movement, who was insistent on a, a multiplicity of identities, um, including queerness, which was often ignored at the time. And, and he says, you know, nothing foreign should be, uh, nothing human should be foreign to the poet. And I, I really took his thesis uh, in that place and I, I hope to, to never write a poem like that again, but I really wanted to go there, and only if only to know that I can use the word if to stop. I can use the word if to stop the body while the mind and the imagination moves forward in this theoretical interrogation. I hope that answered your question. No, that was beautiful, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, thank you very much for your the depth of your insights and contribution to literature, but also in the way you've expanded our understanding of the American experience. And one thing I wanted to ask you is if you have visited Vietnam in recent years, and if so, uh, what kind of impressions or comments might you have about what that experience has been for your generation? Yeah, I've, I have family there still. Um, I buried my grandmother there in 2008, and it was the last time I went back. It was difficult for me because you realize, as a refugee coming back, having been raised by refugees, that you're in a time capsule. The, the, the ethics and morals and values that you were taught by your Vietnamese elders, the women who I was raised by women, all of a sudden, they were the values apparent in 1975. So when I came back in 2008, I felt, you know, the, the kids were wild. <laughs> and I felt like an, an old lady clutching my pearls. You know, we were taught to never sit with our souls pointed to an elder, right? So you have to pay attention to where your body is. Your body is always in a hierarchical negotiation with your elders. You never touch an elder's head, right? So I was very conscious of my body moving through this tiny apartment in Hartford. But, you know, in Vietnam, you know, capitalism had taken full fold. Media 
uh, you know, there was Harry Potter. It was it was it was a modern world, and 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 it was disorienting as a millennial to feel so behind in Vietnam, and and I didn't. You know, amongst my peers, I didn't know how to feel about it. My 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 accent was uh, old, right? My accent was old. My accent was dated. Um, so it was it was like being trapped in time. And I think it's like this for many folks who come home wherever wherever home is or wherever origin is. Um, I think home is very elusive, but origin certainly. And and I think it's a very common experience of absolute disorientation. And I don't know if I processed it all. I'm still thinking about that. Thank you. Yeah. Ocean, I am um, a poet moving into narrative and writing a book, but I haven't found the form yet. So just listening to you tonight is so helpful. Um, I'm experimenting with form, and what I'm hearing you say is, is really helping in terms of the novel might be the best container because what I've been doing is memoir, but I don't feel safe with memoir and that I don't like the curiosity and the, the exposure of memoir <laughs> and um, the autobiographical curiosity that you were talking about. So much of it is, there's a big part of it that also has to do with mental illness of a loved one. And so... I'm hearing you say that the novel might be, as poets, the novel might be the, a, a container for it. And I, I just read with a mutual friend of ours, Henry Mills, and he said, what are you doing? You know, you're just like, what is this for him? I said, I don't know yet. I'm trying to find it. Um, so I want to ask you to repeat the name of the woman writer that you said was killed, the Korean writer. Teresa Hak. Hak. H-A-K. Kyung. K-Y-U-N-G. Cha. C-H-A. I believe Stanford University publishes dictate her one first, last, and only novel. Thank you. Are there other writers who are also experimenting with the brokenness and the, you know... Marguerite de Rost, lover. Uh, our, our dear beloved national treasure named Claudia Rankin. Yeah. Um, Maggie Nelson, yeah. Banu Kapil, Anne Carson's autobiography of Red. Mm. I teach a hybrid course, so ah. if you're interested, you can go up to Western Massachusetts, I'm University of Massachusetts, <laughs> Amherst, and, and we can do it. We go, to, we go to, from Basho all the way down. Oh, Urban, wonderful. Uh, and, and we can do it. But the hybridity was always a form that was wielded by those on the margins because the great monolith of a novel was always lived comfortably by men. And so it was always folks on the outside who had to push the boundaries and found different, uh, break the seams to, to see themselves. And, and all it's, it's not, not a coincidence that a lot of hybrid texts were made by queer folks and women. Um, and and that, that's always a comfort to me. Thank yeah. you. Maybe one more question. Yes. I realize this is not a um, focused question, but can you say a little bit more about failing forward? Yeah, I think, I mean, when I think of failure, I think of being a poet. Um, and I don't mean it in a bad way. I, I think 
if you were to ask me, I think if you want to be a writer, engage earnestly with poetry, every writer. Because encountering the fracture, the moment, uh, the cliff of the line break, it's a, it's a daunting place. You, you, you run up against it and you decide, this is my cliff. And I think we're taught in the culture that silence is death, stasis is laziness, right? That you have to move, you have to overwhelm, you have to conquer, you have to fill the page. This is the toxic uh, notion of manifest destiny that got us in this mess, right? It begins with policy, and it's seeped into the, the sentence. And, and it's not an accident. That's how it is. That's how these toxic ideas happen. And I think poetry is inherently resistant to that because it demands a confrontation with emptiness as a way forward. So when you confront the, the, the cliff, you're asked, not by the sentence, but by a few words, to innovate. You're asked to innovate after every few few words, sometimes within the line, using the sasura. And that kind of innovation is just perfect practice to understand language on an absolutely molecular level. So that on one hand, on one gaze, it looks like failure, a brokenness, fragments. We think of Sappho's fragments. Perhaps they are better as they are. We don't know. But as they are, they're, they're in a way perfect. And that confrontation and demand to innovate is what practices the mind and to think of language on that molecular level. And I do think language is very akin to chemistry. You have elements like hydrogen, for example, perfectly fine. Oxygen. Put them together, water. And I think so much of meaning happens through proximity. And you learn that right away as a poet, that if you move certain things around, your whole world is changed. And I think I just extended and expanded that theory into the paragraph level with the novel, and furthermore, with the scene level and the vignettes. That certain vignettes through orchestration of proximity changes regardless of what text you're reading, particularly a novel, every paragraph, I think, is like a dye. It has a color. You move through it, and you're shaded totally by that color. Every paragraph has a different color, a different mood. By the end of the novel, you're a tie-dye. Right? And I think it stays with you. It's, it imprints and impresses on your imagination and your psyche. And that's how words work. We move through things. We're moving through and we, we possess the phantoms that are left behind. And I think in one way, I don't know if I wrote a novel so much as the ghosts of a novel. And, and that's okay too. Um, it, that's part of, of, of the process. Yeah, great. Um, and before I close, I'd just like to, to um, go back here. Is this still working? Um, if, you, if you would indulge me... Um, I, I, a lot of this novel um, was taken place and negotiates the opioid epidemic um, 
in 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 New England and 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 uh, Connecticut, where it was it all started at Purdue Farm in Stamford, Connecticut, and I worked on the tobacco farms there, and I I lost a lot of uh, friends. We didn't know it was called the opioid epidemic. It was just happening to us. We didn't have those languages, but. I went to a lot of wakes, and, and it just so happens that a lot of the, the funerals and the wakes that I went to were folks who migrated from Appalachia. And they migrated from Appalachia to buy these tobacco farms. If you know anything about coal mining, uh, tobacco is much easier. And and I learned uh, this song, and if, if it's all right, I'd like to sing it. Um, it's, a, it's a song, it's a hymn, it's an Appalachian hymn. And it, it always sticks with me when I think about what our country is going through, um, whether it's the opioid epidemic or beyond the crises. And I always associate it with uh, this notion of hope. And I'm no singer, um, but I like to continue this tradition of carrying songs and stories that matter to us across borders, across regions, um, a tradition and a practice that was instilled in me by the Vietnamese women who raised me, and one that I'm happy to keep practicing and proud to keep practicing today. Bright morning stars are Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.